A hometown hero writes a Pulitzer Prize winning play, only to be told he cannot show the work to high school students. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. The politics of school boards and questions about book bans and bans on sex education have filled the headlines in recent months. But now, a playwright in a local theater company sound the alarm that real censorship has arrived. What does the fate of the play Anna in the Tropics say about the direction of public education in Florida? Also on the South Florida Roundup, a notorious police officer in the city of Miami has been fired after years of courting controversy. We talk about him and the state of police reform in South Florida. All that and more on the South Florida Roundup. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. The long-awaited criminal trial for the confessed Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooter had an unexpected climax this week. The shooter has confessed to killing 17 people, but the trial is about whether he should get the death penalty or not. And rather abruptly on Wednesday, the defense attorney announced that they were resting their case. That's even though they only called 26 witnesses out of a list of 80 witnesses they told the court they wanted to call. Circuit Judge Elizabeth Scherer had this to say about the move, which is highly unusual in a criminal courtroom. One second. I just want to say this is the most uncalled for unprofessional way to try a case you you all knew about this and even if you didn't make your decision till this morning to have 22 people plus all of this staff and every attorney march into court be waiting as if it's some kind of game now i have to send them home the state's not ready they're not going to have a witness ready we have another day wasted i i just i honestly i have never experienced a level of unprofessionalism in my career It's unbelievable. Gerard Albert III covers Broward County for WLRN, and he's been following along the whole trial. Gerard, thanks for coming on. Yeah, of course, Danny. So long story short, what happened that led up to this outburst from the circuit judge? I mean, we just heard it. It's um, not very common you hear a judge speaking like that. Yeah, and that that was only part of it. Basically, what happened is that the defense rested their case and, and, and that's it. They decided that the jury had her- heard enough of their case, that they had done enough to keep Nicholas Cruz uh, from getting the death penalty. The manner in which they did it is, is why the jury, uh, why the judge was upset. And I, you hear her say it there. You know, we kind of wasted a day and we didn't have to bring in all this staff. We didn't have to bring in the jurors and... Um, that's what she was upset about. And the the judge said that the defense attorneys essentially had been unprofessional throughout this whole process. Beyond what happened this week, what was she referring to there? Yeah, and she said they've been disrespectful. She says they've been coming in late occasionally. And and, and when they go into sidebar conversations, they they use headsets, um, almost like uh, football players on on the sideline. And the judge said that they take off their headsets when they don't get a ruling that they like, you know, all all this stuff, you know, from my observations, from people kind of watching the trial, sometimes you can't tell because there's white noise being played. Um, 
you know, but legal experts and 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 lawyers that I've spoken with say that you know, even if this stuff is true, some of it we we know to, you know, some of it we don't know. You know, the, the judge is supposed to be kind of the cool, calm, collected voice in the room, and and not have those outbursts. Right. And what have legal experts and and legal watchers you've talked to said about? in particular this decision from the defense to abruptly stop calling witnesses. Is it really that unusual or shocking in, in the way that the court made it seem? You know, and that's the thing. The, the story isn't so much that they rested their case. It's now become the judge's reaction to them resting their case. But, you know, they were going to rest eventually. Uh, they had, like you said, a list of 80 witnesses. They probably weren't going to call all 80, but you have to list everyone you might call. And it was abrupt. I mean, you said it in, in the intro there, Twenty only 26 out of the 80. The course, uh, the trial, uh, at least on the defense's side, was supposed to go on for maybe another two weeks. So it was it was unexpected for sure, but it, it's not that big a deal. You know, some of the lawyers I spoke to that aren't involved in the case but have been watching say that it was probably a strategic move that, you know, you risk it, when you go as long as they've been going, you risk losing the jury's interest. You risk them not paying attention as much. And it could also have been that the witnesses that they might have brought um, could have been harmful to their case when the prosecutors cross-examined them. Right. And any of the experts you've talked to, have any of them talked about, I mean, could this backfire in some way that the, the judge was in this one case, you know, not that that cool level head, like in the long term, could that impact this or if there is a retrial or something of the sort? You know, if if Cruz does get the death penalty, there's there's no doubt that the defense will appeal the decision. But it's likely this outburst is likely not going to be kind of their headline or their main reason for appeal. One of the things you want to find is is prejudicial error. And if they push for uh, on that end, then this might be part of a larger package of things they present to an appeal court. Um, but it definitely won't uh, upend the trial right now moving forward. And what were the witnesses that were called by the defense saying about why the confessed shooter should not receive the death penalty? Well, the defense, uh, they moved chronologically. Uh, so they went from the time... Nicholas Cruz was in his birth mother's womb till about middle school. And that's where they stopped. They were, you know, a big part of their case was that Nicholas Cruz's birth mother had drank heavily and used drugs while pregnant with him. And so they talked to friends uh, of hers during that time. Uh, they even talked to Nicholas Cruz's half sister, who was about 11 years old when uh, their mother was pregnant. And, and, and they brought in experts on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is something they say Nicholas Cruz had and led to his erratic and violent behavior. Then they moved on into preschool and talked to teachers from preschool into middle school who had him and said that they'd witnessed these, these erratic, violent behaviors. He, he had trouble using utensils. He had trouble communicating with children. He acted like a, a tiger in classrooms. And by middle school, he was openly drawing guns and and stick figures having uh, having sex and you know 
his middle school teacher described him as being obsessed with with violence and guns and he would bring them up at any opportunity basically all this accumulating and saying nicholas cruz was was doomed from the start and people should have caught on to these red flags sooner and so what's next in the trial what are we waiting for next so on September 27th, and that's a tentative date, uh, but that's what they have it scheduled for now. That, that'll be the state's rebuttal case where they'll bring in, it'll be very expert heavy and they'll bring in people that will say, no, Nicholas Cruz didn't have fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. You know, you can't blame these behaviors on his mother's drinking and, and things like that. They'll try and kind of rebut what the defense was saying. And then, um, the first or second week of October, there'll be closing arguments, which will be pretty lengthy. And, uh, you know, prosecutors and defense will have a chance to wrap up everything uh, that the their questioning of the witnesses and their evidence has been leading to. And then the jury has to deliberate. They'll be sequestered and they'll have to decide 17 times on, on each seven on each count of murder, whether Nicholas Cruz gets the death penalty or life in prison. Gerard Albert III covers Broward County for WLRN. Gerard, thanks for coming on. Of course. Thank you. I'm Danny Rivero, and you're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. As journalists, we're supposed to remain neutral on high-profile divisive issues. That way we can present the facts and leave the interpretation to you, the audience. But I would be lying if I said I was not deeply alarmed at the topic of the next conversation. That's because the topic is freedom of expression, and freedom of expression is at the core of what we do as journalists. Cuban native Nilo Cruz came to Miami as a child, and he became a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright. He won the Pulitzer for drama in 2003 for the play Anna in the Tropics, a play that takes place in a Tampa cigar-rolling factory near the end of a historic wave of Cuban immigrants to, to central Florida. That play has been shown to students at Miami-Dade schools for years now. But this year, the school district objected, saying the subject matter is not appropriate for high schoolers. And this happens in the midst of lists circulating about book bans, laws passed that dictate how history can be taught, and limits on discussion of sexual topics in the classroom. Joining us now to talk about this is Michelle Hausman, the artistic director of Miami New Drama, the local theater company that's staging the show. Michelle, welcome to the South Florida Roundup. Danny, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having this space where the community can find a place to talk about our issues. You said freedom of expression is extremely important and it's even more important to have places where we can openly discuss our issues. So thank you, Danny. Right back at you. Really, I appreciate it. Um, so, Michelle, j just to help the audience understand what this play, Anna in the Tropics, is about, can you just tell us a little bit about the plot of the play and what the audience sees on stage? The irony, Danny, is that this play is about the power of literature. It's about uh, a family uh, that works at a, at a tobacco rolling uh, factory, and it's the, the year 1929 in Ybor City near Tampa. And what the way that back then they would spend the time is that they would hire a lector to read to them while they're rolling the tobacco. And the lector decides to read Anna Karenina, Tolstoy's famous piece. And so the you know literature 
literally changes their life. They, you know, passion is brought out. They see the world in different perspective. And uh, and I think that, that that's a gist of a play. It's a power of literature. So the fact that the public school system is banning this play from students to see it is that they also understand the power of literature. And, you know, I read the other day uh, a quote that said that, um, you know, if you're afraid that plays or books will change the way people think, you're not afraid of literature. You're afraid of thinking. And I think that that, that is at the key of this issue is that the school system is saying that students are not capable we're talking about right high school students seniors and juniors are not capable of encountering a piece of literature a piece of art and knowing how to process it i find that offensive i find even more offensive than the the discussions that we were having a decade ago was that art funding was being stripped from public schools so you know organizations like mine, like Miami New Drama, we have been able to fill in the void that the school system has left behind. We are the ones providing free access to students so that they can have encounter with art. Every time I, you know, we do one of these student matinee performances that by the way, we even pay for their buses so they, they can come to school. I, with a microphone, I ask, how many of you students have never seen a professional play? More than half of them raise their hands. Their first encounter with culture is through us, through or through the culture nonprofits of Miami-Dade County. And, and let, let me right. let me let me ask you a, a jump in there. Um, you so, can see, so, I'm, a, I'm a little passionate about it. I could of, go on. Of I'm course, so of course, you are. Um, so so this play, Anna in the Tropics is taught in high school classrooms across the country. It's a big deal play. Yeah. You know, it's 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 a, 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 a golden school. production for yes. for South Florida writing, if I can say that. And and it's also been shown all around the world. Has this play ever been censored or not been allowed to be shown in another place? I have before? to be honest, Danny, it has. So I'm going to share with you that it has been censured in Iran. In okay. Iran. Yes. It's the one country in the world where this play has been censured. Iran, oh, and now Miami-Dade County Public School System. And yeah, right? And the you know, your 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 company, the Miami New Drama, is this the first time that your company experiences this with the Miami-Dade Public School Unfortunately System? Unfortunately not. It's a trend that has been ha worrying trend that has been happening in the past 2 years. It first happened with a play called The Cubans. We tried to work our way around it. We went to a meeting. It was an extremely condescending meeting uh, for, from the folks there. Um, then the last show we did, The Cuban Vote. Uh, I don't know if you saw it. It, it. It's a wonderful show based on Shakespeare, The Taming of the Shrew. It was, again, banned, and they absolutely gave no reasons. Um, we didn't want to go public with it because we were trying to find a solution. We didn't want the students to suffer. But this is, and we also have a lot of other programs we, we do with the school system. We, did, we were concerned of retaliation, uh, and but this was a bridge so far. Anna in the Tropic was, you know, 20 years ago, this is the 20th anniversary, 20 years ago when it was produced at the Cockroach Grove Playhouse, buses of students from Miami-Dade County Public School came to see the performance. And now 20 years later, suddenly it's, you know, it's, a, it, it's an issue, right? 
uh, uh, you know, what, ha what has happened to our society, that, that we became uh, prudes, that we, we became purists. Puritans that people you know cannot cannot encounter. And by the way, this is there's nothing. If you Google age appropriateness of Anne in the Tropic, every theater that produces it, including on Broadway, it says for kids over 12 years and up. So what what what, what are they so concerned about about students of Miami Dade County public school system? They can't see the show. The high school students. Is it because a playwright is gay? I don't know. Because but, you know what but, they didn't, they didn't they, they have not given us. Us, the company, are reason why they have not, you know, they 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 decided to ban this 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 show into students. So I have here the the school district said that it's objected to nine scenes in the play, citing wow. references to references to violence and sexual activity. Uh, Miami Dade Schools District spoke, spokesperson Jacqueline Calzadilla Diaz said in a statement to the Miami Herald, "quote." If families want to go watch it on their own, that's one thing. But staff felt it should not be a school-recommended trip. And as you were mentioning, this was through the school district's cultural passport program, which offers yeah. students the opportunity to see local art productions for free. Right. In, many, in many cases, by actually busing them to watch yeah, the shows. I mean, and we pay for the buses. What is really upsetting from, from, from that comment, and by the way, they might have said that to the Miami Herald. None of them had the decency to write to us the reason why they've decided to pass on it. But what I find so upsetting is that sure, you know what, I can say every, and, and, and I'm saying it to you in the radio, every child from Miami-Dade Public School can come and see the show for free. I'm going to do that. But, but here's the problem, there's a lot of barriers. If you can go to the theater on Miami Beach, that means you, have a, you, you, you either have a car or you have a parent who can drive you there and you have the money to park on Lincoln, on Lincoln Road and, and and you have parents who have the time and, and the money to do that. So uh, you really are preventing, especially the, the kids who have less daily access to culture from seeing this world-class production. There is absolutely nothing wrong with the work of Nilo Cruz. This, you know, one of the first plays I worked and I directed was Grossing this is the three trials of Oscar Wilde, where they were judging by, by Moises Kaufman, the co-founder of Miami Drama. They were judging the work, seen by sentence by sentence. They were judging the work of Oscar Wilde, deeming it appropriate or inappropriate. It's unbelievable. Then in the year 2022, the Miami County public school system is doing exactly the same thing with Nilo. They're taking it were, you know, sentences out of context. By the way, Nilo writes poetically. You know, this is a man who lives in the same realm as Shakespeare. And by the way, has way less sex and way less violence than Shakespeare, by the way. And suddenly, you know... I, 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 want, I want to ask you, because the, the playwright, Nilo Cruz, he was the first Latino ever to have won the Pulitzer Prize for drama yeah. for this play, Anna and the Tropics. Exactly. And in 2017, former superintendent Alberto Carvalho in, 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 inducted him into the Miami-Dade Public School Student yeah. Hall of Fame. I mean, exactly. what, what does Cruz say? You're in touch with him. He yes. unfortunately well, couldn't come on, but what does he say? He could not come here today. He's hurt. He's in mourning. He's in mourning because this is his community. He's a graduate of the Miami-Dade County Public School System. He was so looking forward to, you know, and he agreed to be there on every performance we were going to do with the public school students to talk to them, to inspire them. He himself was a student of Miami-Dade County Public Schools when he 
he encountered Shakespeare for the first time because of the school system. And that made him into other playwright. He's today the same thing with Orrin Squire, who's done four of our world premieres. Now he's a big hotshot TV writer. Because he was at Miami-Dade County Public School, and they took him to see a play. It changed his life. How many Orange Squires, Nilo Cruz, are we aborting by not allowing the, the students encounter to world-class theater? They don't even they don't have that in school because art funding has been completely scrapped, and and, and we are filling in that void. And now they're not even letting us do that. And Michelle, just your personal story. You left. Venezuela when political repression really started to get bad under the late Venezuelan president Hugo Chavez. And you've seen firsthand what it looks like when the arts come in the crossfire of politics. Can can you tell us a little bit about your experience with that? It's absolutely deja vu for me here. Uh, 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 what's happening now? We were our shows were tear gassed in Venezuela. We were we had boycotts and I understand exactly the mindset of those bureaucrats of the public school system where they don't want to upset the powers that be. So because they don't want to upset the powers that be, they have no problem taking away the rights of the students to come to our show and the rights uh, of us to share that work with the students. It's an extremely sad moment, and it's a moment that should outrage us all. We, we, we have to turn on the lights on their reasoning. They have to explain to the public why they, they're going to take away those privilege from the students. And it's got to be a reckoning for this for this community. Are we going to allow the, 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 the banning of books, the banning of art, the taking away of rights of, of diverse uh, uh, students of, you know, it's a it's it's really frightening time. Michelle Hausman is the artistic director of Miami New Drama. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate you you coming on. And sp- I hope next time, next time we can talk about you know better news about the productions we do. Focus on the arts and not focus on the action of the bureaucrats of the, of the public school system. Thank you so much for your space. Thank you so much for your words in the introduction. And I look forward for our next conversation. Thank you. And in the tropics, the band play, if I can say that, will be showing at the Colony Theater on Miami Beach. Um, on the January 12th through February 5th next year. And playwright Nilo Cruz will be directing the show himself. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, we talk about the current status of, of book bans and whatnot in South Florida schools. You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. As we talked about on the last segment, questions of how school districts are handling discussions of history, sexual identity, and what's considered age appropriate in the classroom has been reaching a fever pitch lately. So we wanted to take a broader look across South Florida to talk about how these issues are playing out. What books have been placed in the crosshairs for a potential ban? What are parents saying? And the students, what about them? What are your thoughts? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can tweet us at WLRN. Joining us now to talk about this is WLRN education reporter Kate Payne. Kate, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So 
Kate, after a state law was passed that has been described as the don't save gay law, school boards and school districts have put much more scrutiny into the material available to students. What has this looked like so far? Yeah, so in a general sense, we're seeing this play out differently in in different districts. Um, And again, this is the law that bans classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation in kindergarten through third grade and in higher grades as well if it's not considered age or developmentally appropriate. And there's a lot of um, questions still about what exactly that means and we're different only f- people have different opinions. We're only a few months into this being law. Sure, sure. And districts are still waiting for more robust guidance from the State Department of Education on what exactly uh, is appropriate or not. And again, critically, uh, this law empowers parents to sue school districts if they feel that they're not complying. Um, and so, um, you know, I, I think in a general sense, you know, we're seeing... Um, districts take a pretty broad interpretation of this law so far as they wait for that further interpretation. Um, And, you know, in in some ways, they're being quite proactive in reviewing materials and restricting access to certain materials uh, that they feel may run afoul of the law. And for groups like Moms for Liberty and, and other organizations who are really opposed to LGBTQ issues being discussed in the classroom, Um, This law has given them leverage over districts to argue that these issues shouldn't be in schools. And also the threat of a lawsuit does something in in, in the equation, too. Sure, sure. And another law I'd like to talk about called the Stop Woke Act was signed by Governor DeSantis this year. And that prevents schools from teaching history in a way that can make a student feel guilty or uncomfortable. How is that particular law playing out? Yeah, so this one is is a little tricky. You know, again, it's, as you say, um, it specifies that a person should not be instructed that he or she must feel guilt or anguish or psychological distress um, when when dealing with some of these um, tough issues. And um, so there is some, I guess, wiggle room in that interpretation of is a student, you know, being made to feel that way. Um, You know, educators can't really control how students will feel um, when they're learning about some of these really tough, important issues like American slavery and and the Holocaust. Um, But this this law, you know, largely um, was targeted and and codifying the state's guidance that banned the New York Times 1619 project um, from being taught in classrooms. And again, that's, you know, a sweeping project that reframed American history by putting the consequences of slavery at the center and sort of arguing that the origins of the country began with the first enslaved Africans arriving um, in the year 1619. Um, And I I will say, you know, something about this that we've seen borne out in surveys across the country is that these conversations about the politicization of education are more likely in schools with more white students. And so this really depends on where students are and who parents are, what what their perspective is. Like physically where students are. Yes, like physically what your community, uh, demographically what your community looks like can have a big impact on how much sway these issues have over your school district. 
and I did just want to mention briefly, um, a federal judge recently blocked part of that Stop Woke Act from going into effect, but not the part about classroom instruction, mm-hmm. um, just a part about punishing private companies that require certain kinds of training for their employees. Just wanted to add that. Sure. But the school, the school, the classroom part of it is still intact. Mm-hmm. So, Kate, in Palm Beach County, a list of books started circulating this summer that were being heavily scrutinized by the school district including things like Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. And that list was circulated in expectation of the do- of the Stop Woke Act going into effect. What has the result of that scrutiny in Palm Beach County looked like so far? Yeah, we've seen a good deal of action in, in Palm Beach County. And um, yeah, the, the district was having teachers review the books in their classroom for references to race, uh, discrimination, identity, um, to see if if the district staff thought that these books could could run afoul of these new laws. And some of the books that were flagged for review through this process um, included The Diary of Anne Frank, To Kill a Mockingbird, um, like you said, Dr. King's letter from Birmingham Jail. Also, children's books that feature transgender characters, like I Am Jazz. Um, and the district reviewed these books um, and ultimately most were returned to the classroom, including MLK's writings, To Kill a Mockingbird, Anne Frank's Diary. Um, but some of the books were flagged to note that they should only be available for students in fourth grade and above. And uh, there was one book that um, got the most scrutiny, and that is to be kept in school media centers um, only for voluntary use, not to be in classrooms at all, and that's the 1619 Projects Born on the Water, which is a children's book that was a part of that New York Times uh, reporting. And some of the, just a list of some of the books that have been banned in other parts of the state, um, mm-hmm. not necessarily here, but it's the kind of books that are in the crosshairs, I suppose. Um, the Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibrahim Kendi, Forever by Judy Bloom, Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, They've all been banned in some parts of the state. Mm-hmm. If you're just tuning in, I'm Danny Rivero. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. And we're talking about how school districts are handling questions about gender identity, history lessons, and what is the definition of age appropriate in a time where this is all becoming a hotly debated topic. What are your thoughts? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. That's 800-743-9576. And you can also tweet us at WLRN. So, Kate, uh, in Miami-Dade County a few months ago, there was a huge amount of controversy with the school board when the school board decided that a textbook for sex education was not appropriate for students. But then the district reversed itself and things changed. Can, can you just help us run back through that a little bit, um, that incident and what it says about where we are right now? Sure, sure. So yeah, this was a a pretty stunning um, chain of events. The school board was considering these comprehensive health textbooks, which included information on, you know, bullying and personal hygiene and also sex and reproduction. Um, And after parents protested the materials, claiming that they were not age appropriate, the school board voted to toss them out. And district staff said that that would have left the district without the ability to teach health education and and sex ed for months until new materials were adopted. Um, And this is instruction that's state mandated. 
Um, but the board reversed itself. Uh, the longtime chair, Perla Tavares Hantman, brought this issue back up and she changed her vote. Um, but critically, she's retiring this year. Um, and she is being replaced by someone who was endorsed by Governor Ron DeSantis, who ran on a parental rights platform and has aligned himself with, with the governor's policies. Um, so this is, I think, certainly something that we will see come up again. And how the board makeup is changing um, could absolutely change what happens in the future. Um, and, you know, again, this is critically important instruction in the state's largest school district. Um, we know Miami has had one of the highest HIV transmission rates in the state. Um, this is at a time when abortion rights are being rolled back. And so the implications if, if sex ed is um, up for debate again are, are huge for students. And I, I want to go to the phones. We have Chris calling from Lake Worth. Um, Chris, thank you for calling. You're on the line. Oh, all right. Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm calling just as a, well, I say I'm a transplant, but um, my wife grew up down here and we just moved uh, from New Orleans and I taught humanities in college up there for 15 years. And now when I came down here, I started applying for humanities jobs. And then it just occurred to me like a few months ago that if I, I probably couldn't teach that because I would probably get sued or fired <laughs> at best because I used to teach uh, jazz and of course that involved slavery and all kinds of things like that because um, you know jazz was invented in New Orleans and just the art that was sort of coming from a darker place which a lot of good art really does come from a darker place and um, I don't know if it's so much a question but it's just I guess coming down here and seeing how quickly things are changing is just sort of scary the idea that, like, um, I don't know, I feel like so many things are under attack that I kind of care about and I think are really, really important. And, um, yeah, that's just, like I said, coming at it from a different place, it was just a thought. Um, well, well, we we really appreciate the thought, Chris. Thank you for calling. And, Kate, I mean, to to that point, we have someone calling saying, I'd like to teach, but all with all this stuff in the air maybe it's not a great idea to teach. I mean, how, how are teachers dealing with this? Because in a lot of ways, they're, they're the ones in the crosshairs. Yeah, it's, it's a really difficult time. We know there's an incredible amount of pressure on teachers. And, you know, it really feels like so much uh, depends on what district teachers are in as far as the, the political dynamics on their particular school board. Um, and even what school they're in, if, if teachers feel that they're supported by their administration, um, you know, and, and hearing from them, that's absolutely a concern. Um, will, will someone have my back? <laughs> and, and trying to gauge, you know, um, which parents might complain, which parents might have an issue and, and not see certain instruction as, as age appropriate. Um, so it's it's absolutely something that teachers are, are thinking about. And, you know, certainly for teachers who are queer, it's it's something that's um, really driven some out of the classroom. And, and we're seeing that in the context of, of broader teacher shortages in the state and, and struggles with um, just getting qualified educators in the classroom in front of students. We have another caller coming in, Mark from Plantation. Thanks for calling, Mark. You're on the line. 
Yes. Hi, how you doing? Doing great. So what was good? We're we're not hearing you clearly. I'm sorry. Well, thing is, um, uh, uh, I feel that I'm 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 sorry, Mark. We're 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 trying to we're trying to listen, but I'm I'm sorry. I don't think we can get your comment in. Um, Kate, just moving on, and again, apologies to to Mark. It's just a connection issue. Um. Kate, on on these things, Broward County has been pretty quiet on on a lot of these discussions. Um, but in but in recent weeks, I just wanted to throw it out. I mean, Governor DeSantis removed four members of the Broward School Board and replaced them with his own appointments. So now there's actually a pro DeSantis majority on that school board. Should we or might we expect things to possibly change in Broward County moving forward in the near future? Mm-hmm. It's certainly something that I'm looking out for. Um, right. As as you said, as of now, at least a majority of the Broward School Board is made up of DeSantis appointees, at least until November, when four of them will term out. Um, so they won't be there for long. Um, and again, this is part of the uh, fallout around the grand jury investigation that found evidence of, of mismanagement. Um, but there's there's certainly a lot of pressure from the state on Broward schools right now um, related to the grand jury investigation with the removal of board members and uh, and administrators as well. Which I'll just add is mm-hmm. kind of separate from a kind lot of separate. Of the, yeah. Uh-huh. From the conversation we're talking about. But it's, yeah. it's floating out there. Sure. Sure. Um, just a, a different sort of facet of state influence on local school boards right now. Um, and, you know, in, in talking with the new board chair, who is one of the uh, DeSantis appointees, Tori Alston, you know, I, I've tried to ask him, you know, what do you make of uh, the governor's education agenda? And, you know, what are his expectations for you? And he's been pretty mum on that and, and has said, you know, partisanship should stop at the door. Kate Payne covers education for WLRN. Kate, thank you for coming on. Thank you. Still to come on the South Florida Roundup, a famous or infamous Miami police officer is fired after years of courting controversy. What does it mean for police reform in South Florida? You can call us at 800-743-WLRN. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Javier Ortiz, a police captain with the with the city of Miami Police Department, has been fired after a career filled with controversy. Miami Police Chief Manny Morales said the 18 year veteran was terminated based on his pattern of behavior and his failure to maintain a good moral character. Normally, we probably would not do a segment talking about one police officer. But Captain Ortiz is the rare character who's known by name for his controversial behavior, both in South Florida and beyond. So what does his firing say about police accountability and the ability to reform? Joining us now is Miami Herald reporter Chuck Rabin, who's been on this beat for years. Chuck, thanks for coming on. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. <laughs> Great. All right. So 
Thanks. Uh, so, Chuck, let's talk about former, now former police captain Javi Ortiz. He was an 18-year veteran of the police force. Several police chiefs have signaled in the past that they wanted to fire him, but none actually did it until now. Why was it that he was fired now? Uh, I guess, you know, the city finally, well, Chief Morales and whatever pressures he was getting finally reached a boiling point and he just made a decision to finally fire him. They've been, you know, the city's been trying to get rid of Javier Ortiz for years and years and years, but he's very astute at finding loopholes and working around collective bargaining agreements and and officers' bill of rights and all the super rights that police have that make it so difficult to fire him. And what is it about Ortiz that attracted so much attention over the years to the point where Politico last year wrote a long feature piece specifically about this one police officer? Well, he's he's um, he's an instigator. He's like a moth to a flame. He likes stirring up things. Um, and he, he, you know, in the past, he's used his position as the president of the police union to be able to say things that you know, a normal police officer probably wouldn't be able to because you wouldn't be hiding behind the, uh, you know, the the civilian role. Um, and it just it just reached a boiling point this time, and they got rid of him. But he he has signaled that he ain't go- he's not going away easy. So there's there's going to be a fight to try to keep him off the force for a while. And uh, you know, there's a there's a long list of things I could talk about here, but you know the the. City taxpayers have paid hundreds of thousands of dollars in settlements over incidents that Ortiz was involved in. Um, you know, there was a four hundred thousand dollar incident from a beating that took place outside of the Ultra Music Fest in twenty eleven. You know, he's the as a as a union leader, he was the one that announced a boycott of Beyonce a couple of years back. He claimed to be black at some point, which was not true. Uh, there, there's just a long list. Am I missing anything, Chuck? He called 12-year-old Tamir Rice a thug. He went to Ferguson to barbecue with police officers after the Michael Brown shooting. Uh, he's been accused of breaking the arm of an activist after a, uh, on the street on Biscayne Boulevard after a, um, after a Heat championship game. He, there was a, lar- there was a two-year-long FDLE and FBI investigation into his actions that went back years and years where there are where there's people accusing him of using excessive force uh, on minorities, particularly one woman said he pulled her out of a car and stomped on her while her daughter was sitting in the back seat. Um, it, the list goes on for the list of accusations go on forever and ever. Right. And and there was the one case from 2016 when Captain Ortiz published the phone number of a private citizen after that citizen pulled over an officer and reprimanded him for speeding and, you know, Captain Ortiz published on social social media her number, said followers that that they should call her. She said she was harassed, the internal affairs. They investigated, said he broke policy, but they only issued a reprimand. I mean, to your point, it it, it seemed like he was uh, almost bulletproof until now. He, yeah, he, he is not beyond doxing people. Um, he's, he's very adept at using social media. Um, he... I believe he published pictures of that woman accusing her of of drinking because she was drinking a beer in a picture. I think I'm not. Yeah, of drinking once she was on a boat. Yeah, I don't. I don't know what's wrong with that. But, but <laughs> I just, I, I, it's just, it's just stunning how the list goes on and on and on. And he has said that he will move for arbitration again. Uh, 
And with with the collecting collective bargaining rights that police have and with the Citizens Bill of Rights in Tallahassee that they've garnered, all because they're such a politically powerful thing and politicians are always searching for votes, I wouldn't doubt that he's back on the force at some point. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about that. Uh, first, like, what is the, the union saying about his firing? And do they realistically expect that he's going to get his job back soon? Uh, the union's been kind of quiet, haven't really said very much. The president of the union has been suspended as a police officer for several months now for something that happened up in Tallahassee. Um, and uh, they, I, I, I believe the city is waiting uh, to put him back on the job uh, after they find out what happened, what, what plays out with the Ortiz thing. So uh, it's been, you know, even even the announcement came quietly. Um, they were forced to make some statements. They didn't really go into detail, um, although it seemed like he was fired more on a technicality than any of the other stuff that seemed so juicy that went on for years and years. So we'll see what happens. So, you know, like I mentioned at the top, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about this one police officer, but this one officer became in a lot of ways a symbol for how some people see police officers as a group as, as almost untouchable. You know, I, I've looked at the city data and, and officer captain Ortiz had by far the most complaints against him than any other officer on the force. And yet for so long, it was everything but him being fired. So I, I want to ask you, Chuck, I mean, what does this say in the bigger picture about police accountability in the city of Miami now that he's actually been fired. It's, it's not just the city of Miami. There are plenty of police officers all over South Florida and the state who have had issues with the public and with their bosses for years and years and years. What happened is over the years, police and first responders have become politically very, very powerful. Um, They're gigantic voting blocks. They collectively bargain um, into and create policies that the average worker can only can't even dream of having. There's a state state law and bill of rights that give them so many rights, including the rights to speak to witnesses before even you know anything goes to a hearing. In some cases, they're offered they're provided uh, you know uh, immunity at a federal level through the court systems. Um, so that, you know, they can't be sued and the city can't be sued for their actions. The qualified immunity. The qualified immunity, exactly. So it's it's basically, you know, it's the politicians that have allowed them to get into this position. I, I want to go, go to a, a call now. We have Mark calling from Plantation. I believe it's the same Mark that, that we tried a little bit ago. Uh, yeah, Mark, hi, you're, you're on the line. Yeah, so first of all, uh, with respect to accountability, uh, I feel like there's a very easy solution to this whole thing. Um, this, the, the issue of qualified immunity is not statutory. That's The Supreme Court basically made that up. So you just remove qualified immunity and take that shield down. That's the first thing that you do to get accountability. The next thing, absolutely not should the tax payer be burdened with the misconduct of the police departments all over the country you want to stop this kind of nonsense it's simple go after their pension fund that will that will just shake up everything when you go after somebody's money it changes everything 
and they will think twice before stepping out of their lane. And the third thing is, I wonder how many of these police officers even know the Bill of Rights, because they take an oath, and they don't even know what the First Amendment is. They don't know what a public easement is. I watch um, a lot of information about these First Amendment auditors who, yes, they're antagonistic, and they're definitely annoying, but you'll see police officers doing things that are totally designed to intimidate people because they just don't want to be filmed. Right. But you should always the, record the police. I was, I was going to just, just clarify. I mean, there, yeah, there's been a lot of issues with officers telling people they cannot film when it's, you know, it's clearly sure, in, was, in, in the First Amendment a, to film. That was a gigantic issue on Miami Beach, right? right. Remember, they recently passed uh, an ordinance saying you can't film someone within 20 feet of whatever. And then... Uh, after we wrote a bunch of stories on it, they sort of, I believe they backed off for now, um, you know, enforcing it. I don't know where it is or where it stands right now. But as to Mark, as to what you were, you're saying, how it's easy to fix these things, um, there has to be a will to do it. I mean, you can, you can stop hate in the world, but people have to want to stop hate in the world, right? So, and, and I promise you, the unions that protect these officers are well-versed in the officer's bill of rights. And I promise you that, yes, they could do away with qualified immunity, but who's going to do away with qualified immunity? I mean, what, what, who's, who's going to make, who's just going to say, okay, we're doing away with qualified. Why, why would a politician want his city to be able to get sued, you know, or him be sued directly? I mean, it, it doesn't, it makes sense in fairness, but in reality, I, I don't see these things going away anytime soon. Right. And, um, Chuck, you know, just just quickly, the, the one last thing I want to ask, um, you know, after protests against police violence in 2020, Miami-Dade County voted to create the independent civilian panel to investigate police misconduct at the county level. But two years later, the board's still not fully operating. I mean, to what you were you were talking about, has the steam died down when it comes to these calls? Um, I think I no, I think that board is going to move forward. Um They've just had a bunch of issues and they and they haven't been doing it as speedy as they should. I know that they hired. Uh, yeah, um, I'm sorry. We we, we got We got to cut it there. Um, OK, cool. Ch Chuck Raven, <laughs> reporter with Miami Herald. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. And that'll do it for the South Florida Roundup. It's produced by Natu Tue. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor of news. Christine DiMattei is the interim newscast editor. Mateo Sanchez is the digital editor. The director of radio operations and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Maris. Richard Ives answers phones. And I'm Danny Rivero. Thank you so much for calling and listening.